6. Tealy fine fossils, and at one place four large fossil bones have been utilized as the corner posts of a corral or enclosure. We were told that teeth and bones were accidentally found at a depth of from 20 to 30 feet and some bones were crystallized inside. This formation, which stretches itself out toward the east of Mosachik, but lies mainly to the north of this place, has an extent of about 15 miles from north to south, and from 3 to 4 miles from east to west. Fossils picked up by Mr. Meads in the cutting of a creek near Yepamara consisted of some fragmentary teeth and pieces of bones from some small animal. They were found in the hard clay that underlies the limestone. Large fossil bones also are said to have been gathered near the town of Gararo, Chihuahua, quite recently. It seems to be a custom with the common people to make a concoction of these giants' bones as a strengthening medicine. We heard of a woman who, being weak after childbirth, used it as an invigorating tonic. Here in Mosachik we were joined by Mr. Hartman, who had brought part of our baggage from San Diego by wagon in order to enable us to travel as unencumbered as possible. From now on, until as far as the southern border of the state of Chihuahua, the country is occupied by the large Indian tribe of the Tarahumares. They are now confined to the Sierra Madre, but in former times they also occupied the entire plain of Chihuahua, as far west as the present capital of that state and in a narrow strip they may have reached as far as 100 miles north of Mosachik. They were the main tribe found in possession of the vast country which is now the state of Chihuahua, and although there are still some 25.000 left, the greater part of them have become Mexicanized, adopting the language and the customs of the whites, together with their dress and religion. Father Rebus, in the 17th century, speaks of them as very docile and easily converted to Christianity. The high plateau of the Sierra Madre for a couple of hundred miles southward is not difficult to follow. Most of it is hilly and clad in oaks and pines, but there are also extensive tracts of fine arable land, partly under cultivation, and fairly good tracks connect the solitary villages and ranches scattered over the district. The country of the Aborigines has been invaded and most of the descendants of the former sovereigns of the realm have been reduced to earning a precarious living by working for the white and mixed-breed usurpers on their ranches or in their mines. The native language, religious customs, and dress are being modified gradually in accordance with the new regime. Only in the less desirable localities have the Tarahumares been able to hold their own against the conquerors. There is not much interest attached to the study of half-civilized natives but the first pure-blood Tarahumares I met on their little ranch about 10 miles south of Mosachik were distinctly Indian and very different from the ordinary Mexican family. There was a kind of noble bearing and reserve about them which even the long contact with condescending whites and half-breeds had not been able to destroy. The father of the family, who, by the way, was very deaf, was a man of some importance among the native ranchers here. When I approached the house, mother and daughter were combing each other's hair and did not allow themselves to be disturbed by my arrival. The younger woman wore her long glossy tresses plaited in Mexican fashion. She evidently was in robust health and had well-molded, shapely arms and an attractive face, with a needle nose. She was beautiful, but I could not help thinking how much better she would have looked in her native costume. On the road we had several times overtaken donkey trains carrying corn to the mines of Pinos Altos. In the small Rio Verde we caught three kinds of fish, suckers catfish, and trout, which grow from one to three feet long, and, according to Tarahumare belief, change into otters when they are old. The name of the village of Tosanachik is a Spanish corruption of the Tarahumare Rosanachik, which means, where there is white, 
and alludes to a number of white rocks or cliffs of solidified volcanic ash, which rise to a height of some 50 feet and give to the little valley quite a striking appearance. There are caves in these rocks, and three poor families of Pima Indians lived in some of them. In the village we noticed the first Tarahumir plow, the share of which was made of a section of oak. In its general appearance it is an imitation of the ordinary Mexican plow. In other words, is simply a tree stem with a branch as a handle. But, however primitive in design and construction, the civilized man's implement always has an iron share. Of course, such among the Tarahumers as can afford iron shares, never fail to get them, but in several parts of their country plows made entirely of wood, that is to say, plows with wooden shares, are seen. The foremost part of such a plow is cut to a point, and into a groove made for the purpose a section of tough oak is inserted, to serve as a share, it is held in place by the tapering of the groove, and some wedges or plugs, the share has naturally to be renewed quite frequently, but it serves its purpose where the ground is not stony, later on, in Kusarari, Nurarachik and other places, I found plowshares of stone applied in the same manner as were the wooden ones, here at an elevation of 7.600 feet, and at the end of February, I saw the first flowers of the year, some very fresh-looking yellow ranunculus, on crossing the ridge to Piedras Eshulis, 60-odd miles south of Mosachik, a decided change of climate and vegetation was noticeable. I found another kind of ranunculus, as well as various other flowers, and as we passed through a small but gorgeous cannon, with the sun shining against us through the fresh leaves of the trees, everything in nature made the impression of spring. All was green except the ground, which was gray. The road was stony and bad for the feet of the animals, altogether the country presented a new aspect with its small volcanic hills, many of them forming cones, a few Indian hamlets surrounded by peach trees in full bloom were found here, the Indians here are Pimas, who, in their general characteristics, resemble the Tarahumir, although they impress you as being less timid and suspicious, and more energetic, perhaps also more intelligent, than the latter, we had no difficulty in taking some photographs, among those who agreed to have their pictures taken was a dignified, courteous old man, who thought he was a hundred years old, but was probably only eighty. He showed me some scars on his body, which were a souvenir from a fight he once had with a bear. In order to see more of the southern Pimas I went to the nearby village of Yatachik, which I think is also a Tarahumir name, yet the meaning snow. There are, however, more Mexicans than Pimas in the village, and the president was a half-caste Tarahumir. He was once a shepherd, but had made money by trading mezcal to the natives six bottles for a cow. Although the Pimas whom I visited in the neighborhood, were very reserved, and even more Indian-like than the Tarahumers I had seen so far, still in their dress they showed more traces of advancing civilization than the latter tribe. Everything here betrays the nearness of the mines, with the characteristic accompaniment of cheap clothes, cheap, tawdry jewelry, and a slight influx of iron cooking utensils. The Pimas, like the Tarahumers, use pine cones for combs, and we picked up several discarded ones near their houses. I went still 15 miles further northward, but found that most of the Indians there had gone to the Pinos Altos mines to look for work. That march comes in like a lion, I realized even here in the Sierra, when, on this excursion, on which I had not taken my tent along, I was overtaken by a snowstorm. We had gone to bed with the stars for a canopy, clear and beautiful. We woke up under blankets of snow, which turned to a rain, drenching us to the skin and making us shiver with cold. I saw several small, 
shallow caves, and learned that many of them were utilized by the Pimas during the wet season. I also passed a rock shelter, which served as a permanent home. The housewife was busy making straw hats. She was very shy, as her husband was away, but I elicited the information that she gets two reels 25 cents for each hat. The making of straw hats and mats is quite an industry among the Pimas. In the houses they had a cellar-like dugout outside of the dwelling and covered with a conical roof of dry grass. These cellars, in many cases, serve not only as the work rooms, but also as store rooms for their stock in trade. In one or two instances I found female families living in open enclosures, a kind of corral, made from cut-down brushwood. I noticed two small caves that had been transformed into storehouses, by planting poles along the edge and plastering these over with mud to make a solid wall, behind which corn was stored. In Yepochik I estimated there were about 20 Pima families. I had some difficulty in inducing them to pose before the camera, the president himself was afraid of the instrument, thinking it was a diabolo devil. There are probably not more than 60 Pima families within the state of Chihuahua, unless there are more than I think near Dolores. Some 20-odd families of these live in caves during the wet season, and a few of them are permanent cave dwellers. I understand that the Pimas in Sonora utilize caves in the same way. I made an excursion from the mine of Pinos Altos elevation 7.100 feet to Rio Mores, about 10 miles west, where there are some burial caves, but they had already been much disturbed by treasure seekers, and I could secure only a couple of skulls. An interesting feature of the landscape near Rio Mores is a row of large reddish pinnacles, which rise perpendicularly from the riverbed up along the hillside and form a truly imposing spectacle. An excited imagination may see in them so many giants suddenly petrified while walking up the mountain. Around Pinos Altos and Jesus Maria the rock is a blue porphyry, quite hard in places, and speckled with little white patches. It is in this rock that the gold and silver bearing quartz occurs. Through the courtesy of the bullion convoy I was enabled to dispatch some of my collections via Chihuahua to the museum at New York. Among other things eight fine specimens of the giant woodpecker. Then, sending my train ahead, I made with a guide a little deer to visit the beautiful waterfall near Jesus Maria. It is formed by the river base Ajashik, which, except during the wet season, is small and insignificant. Before the fall the stream for more than a hundred yards runs in a narrow but deep channel, which in the course of ages it has worn into the hard conglomerate rock. The channel itself is full of erosions and hollowed out places formed by the constant grinding and milling action of the rapidly rushing water, and the many large pebbles it carries, just at the very brink of the rock. A low natural arch has been eroded, and over this the stream leaps almost perpendicularly into the deep straight-walled cannon below. The height of the cascade has been measured by a mining expert at Pinos Altos, and found to be 980 feet, set in the most picturesque, noble environments. The fall is certainly worth a visit. I arrived at its head just as the last rays of the setting sun were gilding the tops of the mountains all around. The scenery was beautiful beyond description. Above and around towered silent, solemn old pine trees, while the chasm deep down was suffused with a purple glow. About midway down the water turns into spray and reaches the bottom as silently as an evening shower, but as it recovers itself forms numerous whirlpools and rapids rushing through the narrow gorge with an incessant roar. When the river is full, during the wet season, the cascade must present a splendid sight. I wanted to see the fall from below. The guide, an elderly man, reminded me that the sun was setting, and warned me that the distance was greater than it seemed. 
we should stumble and fall, he said, in the dark, but as I insisted on going, he put me on the track, and I started on a rapid run, jumping from stone to stone, zigzagging my way down the mountainside, the entire scenery, the wild, precipitous rocks, the stony, crooked path, the roaring stream below everything reminded me of mountains in Norway, where I had run along many a sitter path through the twilight, alone, just as I was running now, as luck would have it, I met an Indian boy coming up from the river, where he had been trout fishing, and I asked him to accompany me, which he did, about halfway down we arrived at a little promontory from which the fall could be seen very well, the rock seemed to be here the same as on top, showing no sign of stratification, a few yards from the point we had reached was a spring, and here we made a fire and wait for the moon to arise, to make him more talkative, I gave the boy a cigarette, he spoke only Spanish, and he told me that he had neither father nor mother, and when his uncle died he was quite alone in the world, but a Mexican family brought him up, and he seemed to have been treated well, at present he was paying two dollars a month for his board, earning the money by selling grass in Pinos Altos, at nine o'clock we began to ascend through the moonlit landscape, I had left my mule some hundred yards from the fall, and here I also found the guide, at two o'clock in the morning I arrived at my camp, the road continued through rather monotonous country, the altitude varying from 6.300 to 7.700 feet, grass began to be scarce, and the animals suffered accordingly, it is the custom with Mexican muleteers to select from among themselves a few, whose business throughout the journey it is to guard the animals at night, these men, immediately after having had their supper, drive the animals to a place where suitable pasture is found, never very far from the camp, and bring them back in the morning, they constitute what is called La Sambana, comparatively few men suffice for this duty, even with a large herd, as long as they have with them a leader of the mules, a mare, preferably a white one, she may be taken along solely for this purpose, as she is often too old for any other work, the mules not infrequently show something like a fanatic attachment for their yegua, and follow blindly where they hear the tinkling of the bell, which is invariably attached to her neck, she leads the pack train, and where she stops the mules gather around her while waiting for the men to come and relieve them of their burdens, sometimes a horse may serve as a leader, but a mare is sure of gaining the affection of all the mules in the train, this is an important fact for travelers to bear in mind if they use mules at all, in daytime the train will move smoothly, all the mules, of their own accord, following their leader, and at night keeping close to her, in this way she prevents them from scattering and becomes indispensable to the train, but in spite of the vigilance of the Sambana and the advantage of a good yegua, it may happen, under favorable topographical and weather conditions, that robbers succeed in driving animals away, while giving the pack train a much needed rest of a day in a grassy spot, we woke next morning to find five of our animals missing, as three of the lot were the property of my men, they were most eagerly looked for, the track led up a steep ridge, over very rough country, which the Mexicans followed, however, until it suddenly ran up against a mountain wall, and there the mules were found in something like a natural corral, not until then did our guide inform me that there lived at Calaveras Cuddles, only three miles from where we were stopping, a band of seven robbers and their chief, Pedro Chaparro, who was at that time well known throughout this part of the Tarahumare country, I had no further experience with him, but later heard much of this man, who was one of the type now rapidly disappearing in Mexico, he did not confine his exploits to the Mexicans, 
but victimized also the Indians whenever he got an opportunity, and there are many stories in circulation about him. On one occasion he masqueraded as a padre, a black Macintosh serving as his priestly garb. Thus attired he went to the unsophisticated Tarahumars in the more remote valleys and made them send out messengers to advise the people that he had come to baptize them, and that they were all to gather at a certain place to receive his blessings. For each baptism he charged one goat, and by the time he thought it wise to retire he had quite a respectable herd to drive home. When the Indians found out that they had been swindled, they caught him and put him into jail, intending to kill him, but unfortunately some of his Mexican confreres heard of his plight and came to his rescue. However, a few years later, this notorious highwayman, who had several murders to answer for, was caught by the government authorities and shot. On the road, as we traveled on, we met many tarahumers carrying on their backs trays with kettles with apples, which they were taking to market. The price per tray was two, and the apples were delicious. That night it was very cold, the thermometer falling to 14 degrees below the freezing point. I was sorry to learn from my men that the prospects of grass further south were small. At the village of Nakohana elevation 7.100 feet we were 400 miles from San Diego by the track we had made. Nakohana is a corruption of the Tarahumero Koinoko pine, in a drips, meaning dripping pine, or turpentine. Here I had to stop for two days, because no less than six of us including myself, were suffering from the grip, which a piercing, dry, cold wind did not tend to alleviate. However, as the worst cases did not last more than five days, we soon were all well again, though the Mexicans were almost overcome by the effects of the disease. The president here was a powerful-looking half-caste and very original. After I had read to him twice my letter from the governor of the state, in which the people were told, among other things, to promote the success of the expedition in every way, especially by selling us what provisions we needed and not to overcharge us. He, by way of obeying the orders of his superior, immediately ordered that not more than six should be charged for a fainagot of corn. He also had at once four knives, fat hens killed and sold them to us at the market price. After we passed by Kohina, the country for ten miles was flat, but fertile. It was gratifying to observe that here the Indians had some ranches with considerable land still left to them. We passed several such homesteads lying close together, and as many as four yokes of oxen were plowing, each attended by a tarahumir, whose entire clothing consisted of a breached cloth. The Indians here are very numerous and they are still struggling to resist the encroachments of the whites upon their land, though the ultimate result is in all cases the same. Chapter VII The Uncontaminated Tarahumare is a Tarahumare court in session the power of the staff justice has its course Barranca's excursion to the Gentiles Tarahumare costumes simple and inexpensive trencheras in use among the Tarahumares. We were lucky enough to secure a guide who spoke the Tarahumare language very well, and our next stop was at the Pueblo of Cusarari a Spanish corruption of Uzarari, Uzaca Eagle, an Indian village situated in a rather rough country full of weathered porphyry rocks. We made camp a few miles outside of the village and sent the guide to prepare the people for our coming. There had recently been considerable talk among the Mexicans of the wild people in the deep gorges, called Barrancas, and it was with no little anticipation that I approached the country now immediately before us. There were no Mexicans living in Cusarari, nor in the country ahead of us, in fact, with the exception of the small mining camp in Barranca de Cobra, there were none within fifty miles to the south and almost an equal distance from east to west. 
Indian pueblos throughout Mexico are almost abandoned for the greater part of the year. I refer, of course, only to those which have not yet become Mexican settlements. The first thing the missionaries in the early times had to do was to force the Indians to leave their scattered ranches and form a pueblo. To make a place a pueblo they had to build a church. The Indians were pressed into service to erect the building, and kept at work, if necessary, by a troop of soldiers who often accompanied the missionaries and in this way assisted them in spreading the gospel. From the missionaries' point of view this was a very practical arrangement, but the purpose of having the Indians remain in the villages has not been accomplished to this day. Only the native chosen authorities, who are obliged to reside there during their term of office, form something like a permanent population in the pueblos. The natives come together only on the occasion of feasts, and on Sundays, to worship in the way they understand it. Someone who knows the short prayer, generally the gobernator, mumbles it, while the congregation cross themselves from time to time. If no one present knows the prayer, the Indians stand for a while silently, then cross themselves, and the service is over. After church they meet outside for the second purpose that brings them to the village, namely, the transaction of whatever judicial business may be on hand, generally the adjustment of a theft, a marriage, etc. I arrived in the Pueblo on a Sunday, and a great many Indians had come in Easter was approaching, and every Sunday during Lent, according to early missionaries' custom, the so-called Pharisees make their appearance. These are men who play an important part in the Easter festival, which always lasts several days. They paint their faces hideously tug themselves up with feathers on their sombreros, and carry wooden swords painted with red figures. Such ceremonies were a clever device of the Jesuits and Franciscan missionaries to wean the Indians from their native feasts by offering them something equally attractive in the new religion they were teaching. The feasts are still observed, while the teachings are forgotten. I found the people assembled before the old adobe church, where they had just finished their service. The gobernator at once attracted my attention as he stood with his large white blanket wrapped around him, Indian fashion, up to his chin a fine, almost noble personality, with a benign expression on his eagle face. The Indian never allows anything to interfere with whatever business he may have on hand, be it public or private. Presently all rose, and eight men, the authorities of the Pueblo, marched into rows to the courthouse, followed by the rest of the people. There is always found near the church a commodious building, called La Comunidad, originally intended as city hall, courthouse, and hotel. In this case it was so dilapidated that the judges and officers of the court about to be held took seats outside on the lawn in front of one of the walls. They were preparing to administer justice to a couple of offenders, and as this is the only occasion on which I have seen the details of Indian judicial procedure carried out so minutely as to suggest early missionary times. I am happy to record the affair here in full. The gobernator and four of the judges seated themselves, white man's fashion, on a bench erected for the purpose, where they looked more grand than comfortable. Two of them held in their right hands canes of red Brazil wood, the symbol of their dignity. The idea of the staff of command, scepter, or wand, is widespread among the Indians of Mexico, therefore, when the Spaniards conquered the various tribes, they had little difficulty in introducing their batons lavara as emblems of authority, which to this day are used by the gobernators and other officials. They are made much in the same way as the ancient staffs, and of the same material, the heavy, red Brazil wood. Below the head of these canes there is always a whole board, and through this a leather thong is passed, by which the staff is hung up on the wall when not in use. 
those of the highest authorities are ornamented with silver caps, the lesser officers had smaller canes, in proportion to the degrees of their dignity, while the lowest officials had only a thin stick, about a foot and a half long, through the whole of which a red ribbon is passed. The small canes are not carried in the hand, but stuck in the girdle on the left side. Nobody summoned before the judges by a messenger carrying a staff of red Brazil would dares to disobey the command. The most desperate criminal meekly goes to his doom, following often a mere boy. If the latter has only a toy vara stuck in his belt with the red ribbons hanging down, it is the vara the Indians respect, not the man who carries it. No Supreme Court in any civilized community is so highly respected and so implicitly obeyed as were the simple, grave men sitting in front of the crumbling adobe wall and holding on to their canes with a solemnity that would have been ridiculous, if it had not been sublime. For, soldiers, formed a line on each side. There was nothing to distinguish them from ordinary civilians, except their, lances, or bamboo sticks to which bayonet points had been fastened. These lances they planted in the ground and seated themselves. Presently the two culprits, a man and a woman, came forward, with never a suggestion in their placid faces that they were the chief factors in the drama about to be enacted. They seated themselves in front of the judges, while the witnesses took their places behind them. The mother of the woman sat close by her guilty daughter, but there was no other exhibition of sentiment. The judges did most of the talking, addressing questions to the defendants, who made a few short answers. The rest of the assemblage observed a decorous silence. There were neither clerks nor lawyers. I was, of course, not able to follow the testimony, but it was very short, and it was explained to me that the woman had run away with a married man. They had provided themselves with plenty of corn from the man's former home, and furthermore had stolen some beans, and lived very happy in a cave for a year. The man could not be captured, even though on several occasions he visited his family, but they frequently made native beer, and got drunk and while in this condition they were caught and brought before this tribunal, while the trial was going on, one of the soldiers got up and went some twenty yards off, dug a hole in the ground and planted a thick pole or post in it, no sooner had he completed his task, when the accused man rose with a queer smile on his face, half chagrined, half sarcastic, dropping his blanket, he walked deliberately up to the pole, flanked by two soldiers, each of whom took hold of his hands, and by putting them crosswise on the further side of the pole, made the culprit hug the pole very tightly. Now another man, wrapped closely in his blanket, stepped briskly up, drew as quick as a flash a leather whip from under his garment, and dealt four lashes over the shoulders of the prisoner, who was then released, and stolidly walked back to his seat, as if nothing had happened. Now came the woman's turn to be punished for her part in the thefts. They took off her blanket, but left on a little white undergarment. She was marched to the pole and held in the same manner as the man, but another man acted as executioner. She, too, received four lashes, and wept a little when they struck her, but neither she nor her fellow sufferer made any attempt at, or sign of, revolt against the sentence of the court. While the chastising went on, the audience rose and stood reverently. After returning to her seat, the woman knelt down, and both delinquents shook hands with the chief judge. There still remained the second part of the accusation to be dealt with, the one relating to the marital complications. The man asked permission to leave his first wife, as he wanted to marry the woman with whom he ran away, but no divorce was granted to him. He was ordered to return to his legitimate spouse, who was present at the proceedings with her child in her arms, evidently disappointed. 
he slowly stepped over to where she was standing and greeting him with a happy smile. But the woman with whom he had been living had now to be provided with another husband, who would take her. The judge addressed the question to a young man, a mere boy, standing nearby, and he replied that he would marry her. If she were willing, she said yes. So he sat down beside her. Their hands were placed together. The gobernator said a few admonishing words to them, and they rose, man and wife, duly married. How was this for rapid transit to matrimonial bliss? The next day the guide took us up along some higher ridges, and after ten or twelve miles of slow ascent, we arrived at the summit of Barranca de Cobra, where we made a comfortable camp about half a mile back of the point at which the track descends into the canyon. Here we had an inspiring view, deep gorges and ravines the result of prolonged weathering and erosion, dashing the country and forming high ridges, especially toward the south and west. In other words, here we observed for the first time barrancas, which from now on form an exceedingly characteristic feature of the topography of the Sierra Madre. These precipitous abysses, which traverse the mighty mass of the Sierra like huge cracks, run, as far as Sierra Madre del Norte is concerned, mainly from east to west, in the country of the Tarahumare. That is to say, the state of Chihuahua. There are three very large barrancas. They are designated as Barranca de Cobra, Barranca de Batopilas, and Barranca de San Carlos. The Sierra Madre del Norte runs at an altitude of from 7.000 to 8.000 feet, at some points reaching even as high as 9.000 feet. It rises so gradually in the east. For instance, when entered from the direction of the city of Chihuahua, that one is surprised to be suddenly almost on top of it. The western side, however, falls off more or less abruptly, and presents the appearance of a towering, ragged wall. In accordance with this general trait of the mountain system, the beginnings of the barrancas in the east are generally slight, but they quickly grow deeper, and before they disappear in the lowlands of Sinalo they sometimes reach a depth of from 4.000 to 5.000 feet. Of course, they do not continue equally narrow throughout their entire length, but open up gradually and become wider and less steep. Besides these large barrancas, which impede the traveler in the highlands and necessitate a course toward the east, there are innumerable smaller ones, especially in the western part of the R. 